welcome to the Unteachables podcast. I'm your host, Claire, and I am absolutely no stranger to the challenges and let's face it, sometimes carnage of being a teacher. And if you found yourself here listening with me, I'd say that you might know a bit about that as well, because being a teacher is friggin' hard. And this podcast is dedicated to making you feel a hell of a lot less alone whilst giving you the knowledge, support and strategies that you need to not just survive the chaos of being a teacher, but truly thrive. Think about it as getting a weekly dose of relatable, actionable, and most importantly, enjoyable professional learning straight into your ears. So hit the subscribe button, download me for your commute, and let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the week of the Unteachables podcast. I sat down this morning and I thought... I've got all of these ideas for episodes that I could potentially put out there, things that I really, really want to bring out, um, really strategic kind of specific strategies for behavior management, things like seating plans and expectations and starter activities and learning maps, all of these things that I think would be really beneficial for the podcast. I could really dig deep into these strategies for classroom management, but then I realized that to explain almost all of these things in a way that does them justice and really gets to the heart of why they're effective and not just go over them on like really surface level kind of stuff. There was one thing that really underpins their effectiveness and something that if I did on the podcast in one single episode, uh, it would be much better. I say these terms all the time and I just wanted this episode to be a bit of an anchor to send people to every time I use these terms, every time I talk about a specific strategy, talking about what underpins it. I just wanted to give you a, a bit of a deeper explanation of what these things are. So this episode is all about regulation, dysregulation and co-regulation because a lot of the behaviours that we do see from our students are because of dysregulation and an inability to co-regulate or regulate in the moment. And all of the strategies that I talk about, almost all of the strategies that I talk about in terms of classroom management co-regulation really underpins that and us being able to regulate with our students and us being able to de-escalate the behaviors. So I wanted to, yeah, just create this episode as a bit of an anchor to be able to send you to if need be. So this is just part one. This is more the theory around what co-regulation, regulation, dysregulation is. And then on the episodes to follow, however many that may be, I'll just reference these when I talk about the strategies that I, I talk you through. So when it comes to regulation and co-regulation, I wanted to start with a bit of an analogy. I want you to think about your emotions as a bit of a roller coaster ride. Sometimes we're really happy and we're excited and we feel like we're soaring high, but then other times we might feel really down and sad and angry, like we're just plunging down. Emotional regulation is like having a really skilled roller coaster operator who tries to keep that ride really steady and balanced. Or maybe it's like having somebody beside you being able to kind of give your warning when the plummet is coming. So you're kind of able to brace yourself for it. So in terms of our emotions, we're able to regulate those better, to be able to manage those better, to be able to preempt things. When you're experiencing something that triggers an emotion, whether it's something really positive, like a surprise party or something that's negative, like getting into an argument. Um, It could be even as something small as waking up and realizing there's no milk for your coffee. Your brain obviously gets involved in these processes like it does for everything where we are just our walking brains, aren't we? Um, So the brain gets involved and it starts this hormonal cascade, whether it's the adrenaline to help us run from a threat or serotonin to make us feel good. There are two parts of the brain that I'm going to be talking about mostly. One is the amygdala. 
It's like this emotional alarm center in your brain. It plays a crucial role in our brain's stress response and it's there to keep us safe. And it's like this small almond shaped structure located deep in the center of the brain. So when we're on the um, emotional roller coaster, when there's something that's happening where we're going to be plunging down, anger, sadness, embarrassment, whatever it is, a threat from an animal, whatever it is, when we're encountering this potential threat or danger, the amygdala springs into action. And what we're doing constantly, it's scanning around. And as Robin Goebel said on last week's episode, four times a second, oh, sorry, I think it was the episode before last, four times a second, our brain is scanning and processing all of the information from our surroundings, from the world around us. And it quickly evaluates whether a situation is safe or potentially harmful. And the way that she described that was whether we're in connection or protection mode depends on what's happening when we scan around the environment. And we're doing that constantly. We're not aware of us doing it, but our brain is constantly saying, am I safe or am I not safe? If the amygdala perceives a threat, if we're on that emotional roller coaster, if a threat's upcoming, if the amygdala goes, that is something that I need to be worried about, it activates the body stress response. This is the fight, flight, or freeze response. And it releases the stress hormones like the adrenaline and the cortisol, and it prepares our body to respond quickly and effectively to that danger. This stress response is a survival mechanism that has evolved over thousands of years and it helps us deal with real immediate danger, life or death situations. It helps us to swiftly react and escape or confront that threat. Uh, But sometimes the stress response also picks up on, and very often the stress response picks up on things that actually aren't in, you know, giving us a direct threat for our, our safety. It's really sensitive to perceived threats as well. So even in non-life-threatening situations and in modern society, we may experience a stress response triggered by everyday things like public speaking or exams or work deadlines. So while not life-threatening, they still activate that stress response. So that is the amygdala. It's there to keep us safe. It's to protect us. And sometimes you know, having an overactive amygdala, an overactive stress response, it's because we've had to survive more in our lives. It's actually become more primed to be able to respond to these situations. Then we have the prefrontal cortex, which is sitting right at the front of our brain. It is a crucial part that plays the central role in higher order thinking and our executive functions. It's the thinking and the decision-making part of the brain. It helps us to analyze situations. It helps us to respond logically. It's responsible for all of those complex tasks like planning and organizing and setting goals and problem solving. And it works with the amygdala to help regulate our emotions and our impulses. So when emotional regulation is working really well, when the roller coaster rides, is really smooth and really sweet. The prefrontal cortex is helping us to understand and manage our emotions. If the amygdala gets a bit too carried away and thinks that something's a threat when it's not an actual threat, it helps us find appropriate ways to deal with that. It calms it down. It helps us to express our feelings. So when we're sad, we might stop and go, you know what, I'm going to go speak to a friend or I'm going to go do something to make me feel better. Um, If we're really angry, we might be able to engage that prefrontal cortex and it'll tell us to, you know, go for a walk or go for a breath or whatever it might be. So these two things, these two parts of the brain, the emotional center and the thinking center, they work harmoniously together. That is how it should be. And when they are working together, it is all smooth sailing. 
However, sometimes our brain can have a very tough time keeping that ride smooth. And when this happens, it's called emotional dysregulation. And it can happen for a wide variety of reasons. Again, another very, very normal process in the brain. We can get stressed, we're tired, we can get triggered by something, or we can actually experience something that's really threatening. And during emotional dysregulation, the amygdala takes over to keep us safe. And it can make us feel very intense emotions without much control because when this is happening, our prefrontal cortex is no longer engaged and calling the shots. There's no time to think. Remember, if if we're uh, under threat of something, all our body needs to do in that moment is to run away from the threat or fight against that threat. It's biologically wired in us because if we were to have our prefrontal cortex engaged, we don't have time to think about things. All we have time to do is run away from that threat. So in those moments, our prefrontal cortex, our thinking brain is disconnected. It's no longer calling any shots. But then what's usually able to happen is we're usually able to get ourselves into a state of regulation again. But our ability to do this effectively, quickly, whatever it might be, it depends on the skills that we have. It is a skill to be able to do this. And although it's not something that we were were explicitly taught, no one sat us down in a class and taught us how to co-regulate, or maybe it did through certain means, but we have been training our whole lives for this. This is why some of us have huge emotional reactions and take a very long time to calm down and why some of us might yell and shout and cry and even maybe become violent, whilst others might just take a few deep breaths and be able to settle themselves down really easily. The training that we have taken throughout our whole lives is the training of co-regulation and regulation because we aren't built with the skill to be able to regulate. This is why babies cry. This is why toddlers have meltdowns and tantrums over not being able to, you know, do something seemingly silly like eat a leaf. To help us regulate our emotions, we need a co-pilot. We need someone to help us navigate these ups and downs. We need to be able to help um, get someone to help us to handle it better on our own. Co-regulation happens during our early developmental stages, primarily in childhood where we're closely connected to our caregivers, usually our parents. Every single time that a parent or a caregiver responds to an infant, a baby, when they're emotionally dysregulated, when they're crying, when they're not able to do something for themselves, we are supporting them to develop these skills. These skills are in the form of little connections that we develop between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex as we grow through life, as we develop through life. Every single touch point that we have with our caregivers, with our parents, with people around us, whoever that might be, Every single time co-regulation happens, there are those connections that are firing up and forming in the brain. This is what sets our attachment style. And I don't know if I've spoken about attachment theory on the podcast before, but when caregivers consistently respond to our emotional needs, it creates a secure attachment between us and them. And when we have a secure attachment, we learn that the world is a safe place, that people are safe, that we're safe to explore our emotions. We can seek support when we need to. And the attachment that we have is the building blocks of our emotional regulation. So over time, we experience co-regulation repeatedly somebody's calming us down, somebody's holding our hand and working through it with us. And then we start to internalize these strategies and these coping mechanisms that our caregivers have shown us. And what happens is we start to develop an inner voice that mirrors their supportive and calming presence. This inner parent kind of helps us self-soothe and manage our emotions even when our caregivers aren't around. Even when someone's not around then, when we don't have someone sitting next to us, we're able to then 
support ourselves, to be able to soothe ourselves, to regulate ourselves. And then of course we grow older and we become more independent and we rely less and less and less on external co-regulation from our caregivers and people around us. Instead, we're able to really draw on those strategies that we've internalized. We become, we become more adept at understanding our emotions. We become better at regulating to find healthy ways to cope. Our brain has developed the pathways to learn how to regulate. We've got all of those little finger connections that we can call upon when we need to, when we're feeling unsafe, whatever the, like, the reason for that unsafety might be. However, not everyone, of course, experiences the ideal situation for co-regulation during childhood. Some have had inconsistent or inadequate emotional support, and this leads to challenges in emotional regulation later in life. So children who have experienced neglect or abuse or inconsistencies with caregiving during infancy and early childhood, they might not have a secure attachment. They might not have the emotional regulation skills they need. They might have an insecure attachment. And of course, is the opposite of then having a secure attachment. The world isn't a safer place. You know, my emotions aren't safe to express and explore. Um, People aren't safe around me. They're not going to be there to support me. So these early childhood adversities can lead to difficulties in managing emotions effectively later in life and being able to regulate ourselves when we need to. Traumatic events can also um, create challenges in emotional regulation. It's not always necessarily something happening with the caregivers. So sometimes really traumatic events such as great loss or homelessness, um, people who have fled war, experienced really bad accidents, witnessed domestic violence. A lot of those types of experiences can lead to challenges with regulating our emotions because again, it's all about the amygdala in the brain. So as we experience these situations, the amygdala goes, crap, I really need to keep this person alive. I need to keep this person safe. I need to keep my my body safe. So the amygdala becomes a lot better and a lot more effective at keeping the person safe. And it even grows in mass. So if we've experienced a lot of these childhood adversities, a lot of trauma, our amygdala actually becomes bigger in mass. So it's really important to note as well that struggles with emotional regulation aren't always due to trauma or less than ideal childhood experiences. It can also be because of temperament. It could also be due to neurodivergence. Um, These can impact on the way that the brain manages this process of emotional regulation, as well as the things that may trigger the stress response, like too much sensory stimuli that neurotypical people might, might not be impacted by. So it's really important to remember that as well, that there's a wide variety of reasons why regulation might be a struggle. And whatever that reason is, it's just as important for us to know what it is and how to manage this in the classroom. This is not set. If a child has poor skills around emotional regulation, if one of our students has not established a secure base, we can embed strategies to support with this development of regulation skills. As the teacher, we can be that person that co-regulates with them and starts to develop those little finger connections between the upstairs thinking brain and the downstairs emotional brain. Of course, you can do things to do this through emotional check-ins and mindfulness, you know, really explicit social emotional learning and all the other wonderful things that you teachers are doing. However, one of the most crucial aspects of us teaching our students these skills is just genuinely how we are with our students. And this is lucky because we don't have the time, not all of us have the time with the current time constraints 
of the curriculum to be able to sit there and do explicit social emotional learning. And I spoke at this at length about this with Laura from the Kindness Curriculum back in episode 23. So there are a multitude of ways that we can actively and strategically embed co-regulation into our pedagogies, into our teaching practice. And I talk about these often, but this is just a whistle-stop tour of the core concepts because they really do underpin every single thing I teach about classroom management. And as a classroom management podcast, and the whole crux of it is a regulated student will be a student who displays regulated behaviors, a student who is able to learn, a student who's able to be connected with everything around them. So the more that we can co-regulate, the calmer our classroom environment will be, and the more we can really be able to proactively reduce those challenging behaviors. So if we don't necessarily need to do all the social emotional learning, then what do we do? Well, that is all of what I'm going to be talking about in the upcoming episodes where I'm talking about the actual strategies that you can embed in the classroom. It's not airy-fairy. These are really solid, actionable things that you can take in and do to be able to support with co-regulation and regulation for your students. And obviously that then will lead to reducing the challenging behaviors. Okay, just to recap... We're human beings. We all have brains. And as human beings with brains, we all have the amygdala, which is the emotional center of the brain, the feeling brain. When we experience something that might be a threat, that kind of springs into action, releases all of these hormones. What usually can happen is that prefrontal cortex, the thinking brain can send all those messages down to the amygdala saying the the threat is either gone or the threat wasn't real. And we're able to regulate. We're able to take a deep breath. We're able to center ourselves and we can get back to a place of calm, a place of homeostasis. Being able to do this is a skill that we learn throughout our lives. We learn it through our early childhood experiences. Every single time our parent or caregiver is able to soothe us, to co-regulate with us, to cuddle us when we're crying, to you know explain our emotions when we're a bit older. Um, every single time that happens, all of those touch points start to create little finger connections in our brain between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. They're really interconnected. So then when we have those skills of co-regulation every time we do experience something that's really challenging or something that, you know, someone might've just kicked through the door and our amygdala signal that there was a threat, but it wasn't actually a threat. Those finger connections mean that we're able to get back to a state of regulation and calm because this is a learnt skill that we learn in childhood. Sometimes some of us, unfortunately, don't learn these skills for whatever reason. It could be that we've had traumatic experiences, that there was neglect, there was abuse, and our brain had to get very, very good at being able to keep us safe. Therefore, the amygdala is the one that has grown the connections between that and the thinking brain haven't grown because who needs thinking when you're trying to run away from that kind of threat? But to be able to really teach and reach the students who have experienced these things and don't have the skills of regulation, we need to kind of step up and be the person that can regulate with them in the classroom, to co-regulate with them, to sit by them, metaphorically speaking or um, physically speaking, to really support them emotionally through those big feelings. And then through those touch points and connections, we can start to develop those connections between the upstairs and downstairs brain, the feeling and the thinking brain for these students. The way that we do that, well, that's going to be coming in future episodes. Obviously, this is just an anchor episode to help you to understand the core concepts that really underpin the work that I do, the strategies that I teach, 
the pedagogies that are actually brain-based and work to change these students' experiences of school entirely. But for now, that is all for today. If you found this episode beneficial, it would be incredible if you could leave me a review. Just make sure you're following along, obviously, on whatever podcast platform um, that you're listening on. But then it would be amazing if you left a review because that really does help me to reach more teachers. And that is my goal, really, to be able to support as many educators as possible with this stuff that's going to make such a huge difference. Like I feel like all of these things that I teach in these episodes are tiny little steps forward that make a huge impact on the young people that we teach. Okay, lovely teachers, hope you have a wonderful week ahead and I will see you same time, same place next week.